Good morning. We, I, I think we will start, although I'm sure uh, people will still drift in as they find their way first to this building and then into this building and then around this building. Uh, the, um, ben ben uh, Premer said last night it's easy to find this building, which is perfectly true. Uh, what is less well known is it's, it's quite hard to get out of this building. There are, there are, uh, there are faculty members, students, administrators who came, came in here looking for a cup of coffee a couple of years ago and have uh, never been seen since. <coughs> So uh, congratulations. This is my way of saying congratulations on getting here. And uh, do not be surprised if people continue to wander in in the next few moments. Uh, I'd like to just briefly draw your attention to the activities of the rest of the day. There will be a, a break for coffee at 10.30 after this session. Coffee will be right outside, right outside here. Uh, the second uh, panel uh, is from 11 to 1, and there's a lunch break from 1 to 2. Uh, and the, the, uh, the best place to get lunch in the sense of the quickest and the shortest and the easiest, but not by any, any means the most gastronomically satisfying, is downstairs here in the same, here in the same building. Uh, there was then a session this afternoon where writers will read from their work between 2 and 4, and the keynote address by E.L. Doctorow is at 4.30. And I want to draw your attention particularly to this evening's illustrated lecture by Ben Catshaw. This is going to be a, a slide lecture by, by the graphic artist Ben Catshaw, who's a, a MacArthur Fellow and who currently has a major exhibition uh, in New York at the Jewish Museum and uh, is best known, I think, for his, for his book, The Jew of New York. Uh, the, the talk is called Half-Tone Printing in the Yiddish Press and Other Objects of Idol Worship. Idol as I-D-O-L, <coughs> Worship. <coughs> Ah. Uh, I have to begin with, with an apology and regrets from uh, Robert Alter. There, there, there were to be three, three members of this panel, and there are three uh, members of the panel, and one of them is invisible. Uh, Robert Alter's wife is undergoing some serious treatment, and he felt he had to stay there. Uh, he asked me, though, if I would read his paper, and I certainly wish Bob were here to read it, but I'm very glad to read it, all the more so since uh, I've been Bob's friend for more than 35 years, and, uh, since when we were both at Columbia. So I wish he was here, uh, but I'm glad to be doing this, and I also know you would want me to convey our best wishes to Carol, and I will do that when I talk to him. Uh, the paper is called... Um, uh, Philip Roth's America. I also had the feeling from many conversations last night that the other invisible person here is Philip Roth. It's, he couldn't have, made, couldn't have made more of a splash if he'd been here himself. Uh, so this is uh, Robert Alter, <coughs> Philip, Philip Roth's America. Sometime in the early 90s, Philip Roth was invited to spend several days at a leading American university as the guest of the campus program in Jewish studies. After having, in the course of his visit... Is that okay? Uh, let me put this paper, paper somewhere, okay, because it echoed from here, it's booming. Uh, let me start again. Philip Roth's America, is that better? What? It's okay. It's okay. okay. Um, sometime in the, in the early 90s, okay. Sometime in the early 90s, Philip Roth was invited to spend several days at a leading American university as the guest of a campus program in Jewish studies. After having, in the course of his visit, established a degree of cordiality with the head of the program, a professor of Jewish history, Roth ventured to question his host about something he evidently found puzzling. How can an intelligent man like you spend all your time writing about the Jews? 
The historian, of course, was too diplomatic with, to respond with a question of his own that would have occurred to almost any reader of Roth at that moment. What do you think you have been doing for the last several decades? What clearly lay behind Roth's question to his academic host was an unwavering assumption that he was an American novelist in no need of hyphenated ethnic qualifier, and that all along he had been writing about Americans and the cultural perplexities of the American condition. Roth may in fact be thought of as an exemplary American novelist if one keeps in mind the essentially hybrid character of American society, its shifting composition as an uneven patchwork of immigrant groups and regional ethnic and racial subcultures. But in his own relation to the idea of America and to the particular American subculture that he knows intimately, uh, has notably changed from the early books that made him famous. His initial trajectory from Goodbye Columbus to Portnoy's Complaint to the compelling new fiction he has produced in his 60s and in particular the three novels that constitute a kind of informal trilogy on the American condition. American Pastoral, 1997, I Married a Communist, 1998 and The Human Stain, 2000. The young Philip Roth took for his subject, as any writer would, the sort of people whose social habits and psychological quirks and moral values he understood best, and these were, of course, Jews. Not Jews in general, but lower middle class to middle class, second generation and third generation American Jews in urban settings, chiefly Newark in northern New Jersey. If anyone had asked him whether the restrictions of his social field made him a rather specialized ethnic novelist, he no doubt would have replied that these were the particular kind of Americans with whom, by dint of familiarity, he had chosen to deal, as Henry James had dealt with New England and New York Wasps and Faulkner with Mississippians. There was, nevertheless, a certain uneasiness in Roth's simultaneous relation to his ethnic subjects and to his overriding vocation as an American novelist. He certainly knew these types inside out, and he brilliantly represented the contradictions of their location in American culture, the ambivalences of assimilation in Eli the Fanatic, the exploration of religious particularism in Defender of the Faith, the theological vacuity of American-style Jewish education and institutional life in the conversion of the Jews. But the focus on this rather limited repertory of Jewish-American social possibilities also meant that Roth's fiction was not able entirely to escape conjuring in certain ways with stereotypes, however vividly represented. Although the outrage that Roth's early books sometimes triggered in the established Jewish community surely reflected a defensive unwillingness on the part of that community to face up to its own inadequacies and inauthenticities, the powerful presence of Jewish stereotypes in his fiction was no doubt especially painful to these readers. Portnoy's complaint is a memorable document of the self-conscious sexual history of the Jewish-American male. And as such, some readers found it an actually liberating book. But its constipated, ineffectual Jewish father and its smotheringly solicitous Jewish mother are the stereotypical stuff of Jewish jokes. The book that Roth wrote just before Portnoy's complaint, When She Was Good, reflects something of his own sense that writing about the Jews had gotten him into a box from which he wanted to escape. When she was good, he set in a town called Libertyville, somewhere, quote, in the middle of America. All its characters are wasps. There is an abundance of cheerleader types, Oreo cookies, peanut butter sandwiches, and other trappings of a normal Rockwell kind of America, sardonically viewed, and none of it is very convincing. Roth had, in effect, exchanged the Jewish types and stereotypes that he knew with considerable subtlety for stereotypes of representative Americans that were merely formulaic. 
In the long series of novels that he produced after this anomalous experiment, he would, by and large, stick close to the social material and the human types that he understood best from his own formative experience. It would be misleading to suggest that there is any neat pattern of development in Roth's writing from the late 1950s to the present, but a certain evolution is perceptible that leads up to his new imagining of the American condition through the refractions of a Jewish lens in his recent trilogy. In the books of his middle period, from the Zuckerman trilogy to Operation Shylock, he devotes a good deal of reflexive attention to his own career as a novelist, the reception of his books by readers and critics, his relation to Mellonwood and Bellow, the moral ambiguities of his exploitation for his fiction of the people and events in his life. At the same time, he comes to terms with certain important aspects of his personal experience, and especially with his father, in two autobiographical books, The Facts and The Memorable Patrimony. And in the most remarkable novel of this middle phase, The Counterlife, 1987, he not only experiments with competing fictional alternatives in the plot, he also expands the horizon of fictional events from New York and New York to Israel, creating a compelling novel of ideas in which contested visions of Jewish identity are vigorously explored. If the early Roth had often concentrated on the stereotypes popularly assumed to reflect ethnic identity, the later Roth, of which the counter-life is the harbinger, has made the problematic nature of identity by no means every writer's subject in America is principal concern. The three novels of Roth's informal trilogy focus on three slices of recent American history. I Married a Communist deals with the Red Scare of the 1950s, American Pastoral with the New Left Radicalism of the later 60s, and The Human Stain with the ascendancy of political correctness on American campuses in the 90s. Nathan Zuckerman, the novelist who has long served as, fifth, as Roth's fictional alter ego, is the framing presence in each of the three novels. In I Married a Communist, where most of the narrative is retrospective, we get both an adolescent Zuckerman, susceptible to the magnetism of Ira Ringgold, the communist of the title, and an aging Zuckerman, listening to the reconstruction of these events in the 1950s by Ira's older brother, Murray. In American Pastoral and in The Human Stain, Zuckerman is present mainly as witness and reflective audience to someone else's narrative, a man on the brink of old age, beyond sexuality and beyond active engagement in the human complications he reports and about which he muses. One suspects a psychological rather than a formal necessity in Roth's decision to convey all three stories through the frame narration of Nathan Zuckerman. It is as though he had to have a surrogate for himself, the Jewish-American novelist, a man who has grown up during World War II and come of age in the years of political paranoia and innocent social economic optimism of the 1950s, now a depleted veteran of decades of, se decades of sexual warfare to serve as a meditative, at times elegiac, observer of the evolving American scene represented in these novels. Of the three books, I Married a Communist is no doubt the least satisfactory, though I think it has more strength than many of its reviewers allowed. Perhaps his chief problem as a novel is that it is both an attempt to imagine concretely the ideological fervor of the American old left in the early post-war period and a transparent exercise in paying off personal scores against Claire Bloom, Roth's ex-wife, and her daughter. 
Eve, the actress who becomes Ringgold's wife and ends up publishing an expose of her ex-husband, as Claire Bloom did, of Roth, is predictably hateful. And the daughter is one of the most egregious in the large gallery of obnoxious offspring that is one of Roth's less endearing hallmarks as a novelist. The portrait of Ira Ringgold nevertheless has much to recommend it as a probing representation of an American type and, one must say, a characteristically Jewish variety of that type. Ringgold, the dedicated communist, is one of the more impressive novelistic realizations of a mentality addicted to ideology, a man who hopelessly confuses personal rancor with political idealism, whose modest activity of intellection becomes wholly subject to the prefabricated concepts and rhetorical formulas of ideology, blinding him to the people around him and to the truth of his own emotional life. This phenomenon of the ideological personality is perhaps a special case in American society. It seems more indigenous to Europe, and it is a good deal more salient among urban Jews from the 1930s to the 1950s than elsewhere in America. But in his treatment of Ira Ringgold, Roth has vividly shown its peculiar mechanisms of self-righteousness, self-ignorance, and self-destructiveness. The canvas of American pastoral and the human stain is larger than that of I Married a Communist because both are stories about ultimately failed attempts to realize the American dream with a rich representation of the complicating social contexts that are the medium for the fulfillment of the dream. Indeed, both novels are about the singular phenomenon of innocence that the American prospect of unlimited possibilities seems to encourage. One thinks of Sutburn in Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom and about how the harsh realities of history in the end bitterly disappoint such innocence. American pastoral and the human stain are mirror images of each other. Though different ethnicities are involved, Jewish in the one case and black in the other, each book follows a project of assimilation in which a member of a minority group imagines that he can transcend or perhaps merely escape the limitations of belonging to a parochial or marginalized group by becoming indistinguishably American and thus embracing all the material bounty and social comfort that America has to offer. Faulkner's Sutpen is again pertinent to this pattern as a figure who, through sheer intransigent will, makes his way out of the underclass of the antebellum South and seeks to transform himself into an aristocrat and the founder of a plantation dynasty. Both of these Roth novels, then, weigh the question of whether an absolutely individual American identity is a viable possibility and whether identity is inevitably bound to group and family of origins. Swede Lvov, the protagonist of American Pastoral, ensconced in his plush wasp suburb with his Catholic wife, a former Miss New Jersey, is the less radical version of this project because he does not actually disguise his origins or cut himself off from his family. Coleman Silk in The Human Stain person of mixed race passing for white is obliged to assume a false identity and to pay the painful price of removing himself irrevocably from a loving family of origins. Novelists, when their imaginative work is going well, generally proceed by projecting from the particulars of their own immediate experience fictional images of people and events, something quite radically transformed, that become illuminating representations of our shared cultural condition are shared moral predicaments. In this light, there is an underlying logic in the decision by Roth 
as a Jewish American to create the story of a person of African American origins who, after a profoundly humiliating experience of prejudice as a young man, assumes a white identity, pursues a successful career as a professor in a small New England liberal arts college, and carries his secret to the grave of those around him. Zuckerman alone is privy to it. If belonging to a minority group can come to be felt as a rasping limitation, a constant thorn in the foot that strides towards purely personal fulfillment, what would it be like, Roth wonders as a novelist, to extricate oneself entirely from the minority identity, which in the entrenched prejudice of the American social system seems most indelible, the minority of race. Roth constructs the psychology of his exemplary assimilationist with considerable persuasiveness, and that, together with the shrewd satire of the pieties of contemporary academic life, is the chief interest of the novel. At the same time, the plot makes this book something surprisingly close to the morality tale, the moral of the story being that there is no free lunch at the Feast of Assimilation. Coleman Silk, living his camouflage life, is condemned to be cut off from his family, from the family in which he grew up, and through a more complicated chain of causation, estranged from the two children, most painfully, painfully from his son, whom he has brought into the world. Then, on the verge of retirement, his career and reputation are destroyed when he is hounded down on a preposterous and, of course, mordantly ironic charge of racism, because he has referred to two absent students upon whom he was never let, laid eyes as spooks meaning ghosts, uh, when as it emerges, they are black. The ostracized Coleman seeks sexual diversion and a degree of emotional comfort in an affair with a campus cleaning woman half his age. Uh, the strain on credence of this element of the plot may well reflect the intrusion in the story of a self-indulgent fantasy on the part of the aging novelist. Surely not. <clears throat> uh, she too turns out to be the bearer of a false identity pretending to be illiterate a mask enabling a desired downward mobility that complements his mask, which has facilitated his upwardly mobile career. <clears throat> the dream of transcending origins ends in a wrenching disaster. Coleman Silk is banished, reviled, then killed with his lover by a reflex of violence that follows her from her past life. At the end, those who know his real story, his sister and Zuckerman, are left to contemplate the jagged shards of the devastated dream. The devastation of an American dream is equally the subject of American pastoral. Swede Lvov, perhaps for the simple reason that he is, after all, white, has no need to hide his original identity, and in one respect, he remains perfectly loyal to it by assuming the management of his father's glove factory in downtown Newark. Otherwise, he has the perfect natural endowments for assimilation. He is tall, blonde, nordically good-looking, hence the nickname Swede that displaces his thoroughly Jewish-American given name, Seymour, uh, an outstanding high school athlete, not much given to introspection, a man who exerts physical charm rather than any kind of intellectual intensity. In all of these attributes, he is the antithesis of Zuckerman, whose musings and recollections construct the figure of the Swede for us in the novel. Swede Lvov, coming of age in the early post-war era of expanding American horizons, proceeds on the path prompted by his native gifts, marrying, marrying an icon of shiksa beauty, building a grand house in a largely Gentile neighborhood, and energetically expanding his material assets to finance all this. The recipe for sumptuous success is in part soured, as we might expect in a realistic novel, by the acids of time and by a tincture of bad luck. 
the beauty queen becomes fidgety and dissatisfied as a pampered housewife without much compelling to occupy her, and romance crumbles into relentless domestic friction and then divorce. While the only daughter of the Lvovs turns out to be a hopeless stutterer, who with the passage of time becomes progressively disaffected from her parents and their comfortable bourgeois values. But what most decisively subverts the Swedes' American dream is the unanticipated intervention of history. And it is this that makes the novel so deeply instructive as a stock-taking of the national condition in the latter part of the 20th century. Of the three novels we are considering, it is American pastoral that has the greatest bite, and that may be at least in part, that may be at, be at least in part because of its sharp focus on the period that has proved to be the crucial watershed of recent American history the time of radical fervor in the late 1960s. Mary Lavov, the desperately unhappy stutterer, finds a voice, literally and figuratively, by joining a weatherman-like organization dedicated to the violent overthrow of what it represents as a fascist imperialist America. She is involved in planting a bomb at a local post office which kills a worker when it explodes. Mary then disappears into the underground where she will be responsible for three more killings and she's utterly lost to her parents for years. The first sign that she is still alive comes from one Rita Cohen, a comrade in the radical movement and in some, way, some respects a rather improbable character who visits Swede in the glove factory. When father and daughter finally meet, she's become mm -hmm. a Jane, her face covered by a rag-like veil, her life an aching oxymoron a fanatic asceticism and squalor, still another avatar of the child who was turned into a nearly unrecognizable other. <coughs> the encounter between father and daughter is one of the most painful moments in Roth's fiction. And here uh, Bob quotes, they are crying intensely, the dependable father whose center is the source of all order, who could not overlook or sanction the smallest sign of chaos for whom keeping chaos far at bay had been intuition's path to certainty, the rigorous daily given in life, and the daughter who is chaos itself. End of quote. All these three novels, but American pastoral most keenly, view this vocation for chaos, this political nostalgie de la boue, with mingled grief and rage. Mary Lavov is not a freak concoction of Roth's imagination, but a troublingly symptomatic image of a swerve into self-destruction of this generation of Americans. Many of them, the <coughs> grandchildren or great-grandchildren of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe who came to the country with the hope of finding a new life here. Her willful mindlessness, her intoxication with idealistic fervor, mirrors the psychology of such real-life counterparts as Kathy Budin, now serving 20 years to life for her part in the Rockland County Brinks robbery in which a security guard and two policemen were murdered. Budin, the, lever, the daughter of a left liberal New York Jewish attorney, explained to a recent interviewer why she gave herself over to an ostensibly radical, essentially criminal group called the Black Liberation Army that committed the Brinks killings. It's a quote now from Kathy Budin. My way of supporting the struggle is to say that I don't have the right to know anything, that I don't have the right to engage in political discussion because it is not my struggle. I certainly don't have the right to criticize anything. The less I would know and the more I would give up total self, the better, the more committed, and the more moral I was." End of quote. One may concede that Philip Roth is at bottom writing about Americans, not merely about Jews, but his vision of the American experience is colored by his location as a Jewish American who was a boy during World War II 
and came to adulthood in the 1950s. For his generation, the country that had successfully fought the good war and then seemed to open all avenues to energetic citizens of every background was a country that made self-realization possible for Jews and for others as no other country had. The adolescent Nathan Zuckerman, as we learn in I Married a Communist, is the author of naively idealistic texts suitable for patriotic cantatas, a gesture that neatly expresses the tenor of this moment in American history. The mature novelist is, of course, as aware as any open-eyed observer would be of the many yawning gaps between American ideal and American reality. But for him, the notion that America is the source of all global and local evil, that self and family have to be renounced in submission to the cause of overturning the American order, is a moral scandal. Roth's sharply critical perception of this turning against the American dream first in the old Marxism, but above all in the radicalism of the 1960s and its legacy during the last decades of the century, is anchored not only in his general experience, but also perhaps more pertinently in his literary career. As a graduate student at the University of Chicago, he studied Henry James and other American masters and aspired to emulate them. His first effort to do that, on the surface hardly recognizable as such, was an exploration of the mores and urban folkways of New Jersey Jews in the stories collected in Goodbye Columbus. The timing of this 1959 volume was a happy one, coming at a moment when American culture was in the process of abandoning the myth of its own monolithic character and embracing its actual diversity. The young writer, far from being perceived as a hyphenated special literary case, was celebrated by critics as an important new American talent, and Goodbye Columbus was given the National Book Award for fiction. In this heady period for Jewish-American writing, the award came six years after Malamud had received it for The Magic Barrel, and five years before Bellows Herzog would be accorded the same honor. What the young Philip Roth discovered was that it was perfectly possible to become an American success as a visible member of a minority group, even tapping the distinctive materials of the minority subculture. In this very period, the children and grandchildren of immigrants were realizing similar possibilities in the other arts and in entertainment, in journalism, politics, and the professoriate. It required, of course, a sometimes uneasy balancing act to be part of the American mainstream in some sense to be assimilated and yet maintain these manifest bonds with the group of origin. But the American promise, surely as Roth had experienced it in his own enterprise as a writer, was genuine, and the Jews as a people expert in migrations had known nothing quite like it anywhere else. Although a certain kind of politically suspicious interpreter could easily infer a conservative outlook from Roth's three recent novels on the state of America, it seems to me that such ready-made right-left distinctions are beside the point. There is no conservative agenda in these books, but they do express dismay over the willful rejection crystallized in the 1960s of the grand American promise that for Roth deserves instead a sense of gratitude. Perhaps the most American thing about Roth is the sense he shares with Bellow and with Whitman and with many other writers that America is an exciting workshop, bustling with possibilities for the forging of selves. Possessed of that feeling, he's bound to see little but perversity in the mindset that casts America as a prison house of oppression and conceives of a surrender of the total self to the lethal, lethal forces of resentment as a higher morality. Thank you. That is the end.
Sidra Israhi, who will, who will uh, speak next, is um, a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the author of, among a number of many articles and books, By Words Alone, The Holocaust in Literature, and most recently, uh, Booking Passage, Exile and Homecoming in the, I can't read my writing, modern, in the modern Jewish, I'll do it again, uh, Booking Passage, Exile and Homecoming in the Modern Jewish Imagination. Thank you. It's a pleasure to share the podium with Michael Wood, with my dear friend Alvin Rosenfeld, and with um, Robert Alter, who even if he is something of a spook today, is very much present with us. Um, and you'll see how my paper dovetails with his, although I think that I would attribute it more to an affinity of intellectual interests than to any coordination between us. Um, I want to thank all of those who have organized this splendid exhibition and this splendid conference and invited all of us here to contemplate a subject that has so many uh, so many different understandings and responses. And I would like to offer my paper as a kind of secular prayer for the recovery of Carol Cosman, uh, whose illness is the reason why Bob Alter is not with us today. I've made a slight change in the title of my paper. Uh, it's no longer American Diaspora, the Comedy of Impersonation, but American Diaspora, the Tragical Comedy of Impersonation. In The Human Stain, as we've just seen, Coleman Silk abandons his African-American mother in order to claim a Jewish place for himself in the American dream. The scene is a familiar one. It brings full circle a trajectory that Al Jolson began in blackface when he got down on his knees and ending the era of the silent films belted out a Yiddish-accented tribute to his doting mother. I suggest we regard these mother-son exchanges as landmarks of impersonation, that while testing the boundaries of tribal and familial loyalty, also signal a radical shift in the American comedy of self-invention. In my study of exile and the literary imagination, I explored America as the comic theater of the Jewish diaspora. In this theater, it didn't always matter whether dreamscapes became landscapes, since the frontier was endless. As immigrants from different ethnic origins made their own collective and individual claims on the American ethos of becoming, Jews from Eastern Europe could fully realize the twin burden and opportunity of galut, distance from the sacred, construed as license to play in a yet unredeemed world. In narrative, in theater, in film, gestures of impersonation would hone the comic spirit. The first act in this drama belonged to Shalom Aleichem, Motl the Cantor's son's reincarnation from a failed tinkerer in Kasrilivka to a successful entrepreneur in New York. The second act was Al Jolson's, the last act of the century behind us and the first of the century before us belonged to Philip Roth. In 1993, Philip Roth appeared in duplicate as character and as imposter in Operation Shylock. Between himself, he espoused two radically different solutions to the Jewish problem. 
one literary, the other political, both diasporic. The endangered Jews of Israel can be written out of danger or even transferred out of danger to the safety of Golus. Although, as in so many of his other novels, the fate and the follies of Israel are foregrounded in Operation Shylock, the poetic license is uniquely American. Here was the culmination of a satiric imagination forged of 20th century material and made in the USA. Fueled by the power of the grotesque and the transgressive to deflate the collective ego, propelled by the engine of sexual and intellectual ambition to expose the possibilities, the pieties, and the complacencies of a democratic sense of boundlessness. But that was not Roth's last word. He inaugurated the new century by revealing the sinister dead end to which such celebrated acts of freedom can lead. In so doing, he remains, as always, just one step ahead of the rest of us in naming the malaise of our time. If from the jazz singer to the human stain, we can trace the move from blackface to whiteface, from the Jew impersonating the black to the black impersonating the Jew, we can also trace the escalating price of such transactions. The human stain exacts its full pound of flesh. While the mask on the face of both Al Jolson and Coleman's silk signifies trust in the American promise of self-invention, the latter will be avenged by forces enacting a form of dr dramatic justice, the triumph of fate over freedom. As the great American promise sours and the grapes of wrath ripen and ferment, the drama moves from comedy or satire towards tragedy. The insidious imposter Philip Roth, who espouses outrageously seductive ideas in the guise of an esteemed American Jewish writer in Operation Shylock, is replaced in the next volume by the benign Coleman Silk, who impersonates merely to pass in a world that has come to tolerate and even celebrate, as we're doing, Jews. And here we reach the fine line between impersonation and imposture, between the relative innocence of the masquerade and the fraudulent assumption of another's identity. Michael Bakhtin and Natalie Davis, among others, have taught us, and Philip Roth has shown us, how the changeling, the fool, and the rogue may function as touchstones of changing social dialogue. Their masks grant the right, in Bakhtin's words, not to understand, the right to confuse, to tease, to hyperbolize life, the right not to be taken literally, not to be oneself, the right to live a life in the chronotope of theatrical space, the right to act life as a comedy and to treat others as actors, the right to rip off masks, and finally, the right to betray to the public a personal life down to its most private and prurient little secrets. If, however, we assume that it is conventionally necessary for the impersonator's true identity to be revealed on stage, the circumstances in which this takes place 
are as crucial to the social dialogue as the original act of disguise. It is significant, then, that in the human stain, neither the masking nor the unmasking takes place in real time. Although the valedictory scene between Coleman and his mother provides the point of departure for his invented biography, it is recounted only toward the middle of the novel. It is not enacted in real dramatic time, I submit, because what will become the focus of exploration are not the psychological and moral consequences of a young man's decision to impersonate someone of another faith and color, but rather the unfolding of an inexorable plot set into motion by this action. Fate and freedom are locked in battle here. Fate as the inevitable consequence of deeds performed in the name of freedom, imposed not as the workings of conscience, but through the ultimate agency of a higher authority. This is called to our attention first in the convergence of the theme of trespass in the public and the private realms, the realms of the powerful and the ordinary, or if you will, the world historical and the fictional. The pigment on the skin of an impersonator like the trace of semen on the dress in the Oval Office, is the stain of passing into territory designated for others. The stained face is fully revealed only after the principal characters have met their bloody deaths, but the stained dress is introduced on the novel's second page. Now, even if you've borne with me patiently up until this point, you might ask with some exasperation just how Monica's blue dress is like Coleman's white face or Jolson's blackened punim. Ostensibly, the analogy lies not in the stain itself, the stain that signals our flawed, hubristic human nature, but in the self-righteous response to all who dare to reach the persecuting spirit of the times that applies its venom equally to the great and the humble. The dust jacket of the human stain proclaims that in a time of cultural warfare with the persecuting spirit on the rise, a president is hounded over a sexual affair, a professor loses his job over a single word, and the nation succumbs to an ecstasy of sanctimony, unquote. <clears throat> That, anyway, is the explicit surtext of this novel, the same ecstasy of sanctimony that nearly succeeded in removing Bill Clinton from real office did succeed in ruining the fictitious career of Coleman Silk and even contributing to the death of his wife. But Coleman, it turns out, has been accused of the wrong sin, he is ironically hounded out of his job because of having referred in his classroom to two absent African-American students as spooks, which is interpreted by his colleagues as a racist slur on the part of the Jewish professor. <clears throat> Coleman's real sin, his indelible stain, the act of repudiating his mother and his race is never revealed publicly. It works not as a social force, but as a cosmic avenging spirit, releasing the furies of our time disguised as guardians of political correctness. As satire, the narrative could have switched tracks rather smoothly with the sudden revelation of the secret at its core. With names like Delphine Rue, spelled R-O-U-X, 
number one persecuting spirit disguised as professor of French literature. And Fania Farley, the presumably illiterate, much abused and voluptuous 34-year-old who is Silk's mistress. With relentless frontal attacks on the sacred cows of American popular and academic cultures, a full farcical unmasking could only have strengthened Roth's position as our grand master of satire, of farce, of commedia dell'arte. Structurally and texturally, however, from the very beginning, this novel also bears the signature and ambition of Aristotelian tragedy. The terms of reference in the opening pages come quite transparently from the canons of Western and American culture. Authorized by an epigraph from Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, the drama opens on the campus of a college called Athena with a professor of Greek and Latin at center stage. Add to this the classical sites of American transactions invoked in the idioms of Steinbeck and Hawthorne. The rural post office looked as if it might have sheltered an Oki family from the winds of the Dust Bowl back in the 1930s. The woman who cleans the post office with whom Professor Silk is having an affair looks as though she belonged to the church-ruled, hard-working good wives who suffered through New England's harsh beginnings, stern colonial women locked up within the reigning morality and obedient to it. Hawthorne himself makes a direct appearance on the next page, summoned to pronounce on the persecuting spirit of the times, which match in fervor those of 17th century Salem. The language of Sophoclean tragedy continues as a running commentary throughout the narrative. The narrator, as we've already heard, is the writer Nathan Zuckerman, familiar to us from his earlier incarnations as chief witness to American culture. Here, his own biography and consciousness are so subordinated to Coleman's that his writerly instincts become mere instruments in the revelation of the other's fate, suggesting that, like Coleman, he serves a god higher than his own authorial ego. In an uncharacteristically and anachronistically mythic, almost formulaic voice, the narrator reverts to the family as the archetypal realm of tragedy and casts Coleman's act of self-emancipation as a form of betrayal resonating with primordial acts of parricide. And I quote, he was murdering her. You don't have to murder your father. The world will do that for you. Who there is to murder is the mother, and that's what he saw he was doing to her. Murdering her on behalf of his exhilarating notion of freedom that is the test, to give the brutality of the repudiation its real, unpardonable human meaning, to confront with all the realism and clarity possible the moment when your fate intersects with something enormous. This is his, the man and his mother, the woman and her beloved son. If in the service of honing himself he is out to do the hardest thing imaginable, this is it, short of stabbing her. This takes him right to the heart of the matter. This is the major act of his life, and vividly, consciously, he feels its immensity. Unquote. The self-abnegation involved in Coleman's honing himself is, for his mother, not only an abandonment of her and the rest of his biological family, but an act of self-enslavement. You think like a prisoner, she says. You do, Coleman Brutus. Yes, that's his middle name. 
You're white as snow and you think as a slave, she tells him in what will prove to be their last meeting. Once again, the classical reference, this time to Roman betrayal, is filtered through Shakespeare. And once again, in this context, the Greek tragedian is invoked to frame the deeds of these ordinary mortals. He thought the same useless thoughts, useless to a man of no great talent like himself, if not to Sophocles, how accidentally a fate is made, or how accidental it may seem when it is inescapable. Through its strange and destiny-driven meanderings, the human stain becomes a vindication of that pronouncement, at the level not of character development, but of plot, of action that sets the inescapable into motion. Maybe Coleman Silk, an ordinary man in ordinary times, doesn't have the stature of the great classical hero. He will, however, share his fate. While detouring through race relations and political correctness in the American Academy in the 1990s, Nemesis is working its way subliminally towards the inevitable denouement. In what may be the most ironic reversal of the American promise in Roth's generation, or ours for that matter, and that covers, I hope, several generations, fate triumphs over personality, spirit over individuality. Coleman Silk never comes to the recognition of an Oedipus or a Lear, or even, for that matter, Dreiser's Clyde Griffiths, in the monstrous deed he has done and its impact on his own and others' lives. Revelation of his secret comes only after his death, and only, it would seem, for the sake of knowledge of an abstracted sort, not for the cathartic or therapeutic impact on either character or presumptive audience. No real consequences, that is, for those most directly involved. The masquerade becomes who he is. Having met the woman he decides to marry, non-Jewish, Jewish Iris, as the medium through which to make himself anew, he is represented as thinking, quote, that he'd finally got it right. He was no longer trying on and casting off, endlessly practicing and preparing to be. This was it, the solution the secret to his secret. As a hitherto unknown amalgam of the most unalike of America's historical undesirables, he now made sense, unquote. In his own eyes, he had grown into a kind of alloyed integrity. Silk's invented biography will unfold from here on in as a success story. His marriage and career will be crowned with all the laurels that talent and hard work can produce. His secret will be so well kept even by the gods, that he will manage to father four children with no visible trace of their genetic origins. The narrator guesses at, but does not even dare to attribute to Coleman thoughts of contrition or defeat. Such thoughts come only from Coleman's sister Ernestine and only at Coleman's graveside. I think he came himself to believe, she says, that there was something awful about withholding something so crucial to what a person is, that it was his children's birthright to know their genealogy. That's what Ernestine tells Nathan in the private conversation following the funeral. And there was something dangerous, too. Think of the havoc he could create in their lives if their children were born recognizably Negro. At this point... The importance of being Ernestine cannot be denied, if only as an instrument of closure, and if only for the sake of knowledge, knowledge of one's roots, knowledge of who one is. 
Yet this is hardly a sentimental celebration of return to roots. The image of the writer or character living fully in the interstices of culture is both a fictional artifact and an article of faith in Roth's work. His most recent non-fictional publication, Shop Talk, records exchanges he had over the years with a number of contemporary writers. In a conversation with Isaac Bashevis Singer held in 1976, the mention of Bruno Schultz and Franz Kafka provoked the Yiddish writer's judgment that the metamorphic forms of their imagination are an expression of their rootlessness. Quote, if Schultz had identified himself more with his own people, Singer argued, he might not have expended so much energy on imitation, parody, and caricature. I think that Schultz had enough power to write real serious novels, but instead often wrote a kind of parody. And I think basically he developed this style because he was not really at home, neither at home among the Poles nor at home among the Jews, unquote. Roth's response to Singer's words tends to ratify rather than dispute Singer's point, though not the value he ascribes to it, by equating the serious with the real and then downgrading reality along with the forms of collective identification that attest to it. I don't think, Roth says, that with Schultz any more than with Kafka, the greatest difficulty was an inability to be at home with this people or with that people, however much that may have added to his troubles. From the evidence of this book, they're talking about Schultz's The Street of Crocodiles, it looks as though Schultz could barely identify himself with reality, let alone with the Jews. One is reminded of Kafka's remark on his communal affiliations. What have I in common with the Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself, unquote. Whether or not we would agree with Basheva Singer's pronouncement on the value of novels over short stories or serious over parodic forms, even as regards his own writing, he has unwittingly revealed those elements that compose the diasporic imagination. They certainly hold true for Roth, the ultimate diasporic writer. As master of imitation, parody, and caricature, Roth, too, barely identified himself with reality. And in fictions from Goodbye Columbus to the Breast, he indulged the delicious metamorphic forms that the spirit of exile facilitates in America. Quote, it's possible to think of Schultz's rootlessness not as something that held him back from writing serious novels, but as a condition upon which his particular talent and imagination thrived, Roth says of Schultz, in what could be his own Ars Poetica. Self-realization, salvation is achieved either through self-invention or authorial intervention. Like an omnipotent Jewish mother, a meddling agency nearly always appears, even in Roth's later, more sober fiction, to set the character free, to save him from his coronary, from the Arab-Israeli conflict, from Jewish destiny itself, by changing the script. Roth recognizes in writers as far-flung as Kafka and Bernard Malamud, quote, the freedom conferred by masks, what Heine called Maskenfreiheit. So when reality assert, reasserts itself in the human stain, not as an invitation to the carnival of self-invention, but as fate, there is a terrible departure from former acts of prowess that characterize the comic spirit. In this narrative, the character is explicitly attempting to create his life as a fictional enterprise. Yet when God appears in the machine, 
in this case an automobile driven at breakneck speed by a crazed Vietnam veteran intent on avenging his former wife and her Jew professor. It is not as a beneficent savior, but as an avenging force. Why? What is it in the hubris of self-invention that has caught the attention of the writer most fiercely committed to upholding the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fiction? At times, the language of Sophoclean tragedy becomes so insistent as to read like a defiant attempt to reassemble the cultural canons that the Delphine ruse of the world have dismantled. Part of the attack on political correctness from the inside, the Jewish novelist creates an African-American character to assume the identity of a white Jew and then abdicates by submitting the whole Geschichte to a higher authority, the Greeks, vindicating both their version of the story and their place in the pantheon. But in so doing, Roth is, in a way, abdicating his own place in the pantheon, rescinding his own constitutionally protected access to the comic muse. The loyalty exacted here may be neither to tribal boundaries nor even to the right of self-manufacture, but to some higher, more structural principle. Roth is invoking with the nostalgia of age, that youthful Dionysian moment in the 5th century BCE when the comic, the tragic, and the satyr drama shared the same stage. But certain Aristotelian principles have been conceded to our peculiarly American, peculiarly postmodern sensibility. I couldn't imagine anything that could have made Coleman more of a mystery to me than this unmasking Nathan muses, now that I knew everything, it was as though I knew nothing. And instead of what I'd learned from Ernestine unifying my idea of him, he became not just an unknown, but an uncohesive person. Was Coleman merely being another American and, in the great frontier tradition, accepting the democratic invitation to throw your origins overboard if to do so contrib contribute, contributes to the pursuit of happiness? Unquote. The frontier tradition and the democratic tradition yield to a form of knowledge gained posthumously, thus serving ends that are neither therapeutic nor cathartic, neither salvific nor integrative. The propriety of knowledge is not the characters but the times. Devoid of any teleological consciousness, devoid of the powerful theodicy of restitution at the end of time that feeds the Jewish comic imagination, America puts its faith in history as the unfolding theater of redemption. And here, I think, lies the real secret of this novel. As Sack Van Berkovich argues, America's trust in history rather than in prophetic promise is the source not only of its comic vision, but also of its terror. Quote, hence the grand line of dystopian writers in America, of doomsday prophets, if America fails, history fails, says Sack Van Berkovich. And there's no proviso from heaven that America will not fail or, or that it will be restored if it does. <clears throat> Indeed, here Nathan's final verdict is that as a created self, Coleman was fully ensnared by the history he hadn't quite counted on 
the we that is inescapable, the present moment, the common lot, the current mood, the mood of one's country, the stranglehold of history that is one's own time, blindsided by the terrifyingly provisional nature of everything, unquote. A year before the World Trade Center came tumbling down before our eyes, along with our so-called innocence, Philip Roth had dismantled the twin towers of infinite invention and ambition that he himself had so painstakingly, mischievously, and lovingly constructed. This is the way the novel ends. Only rarely, at the end of our century, does life offer up a vision as pure and peaceful as this one. A solitary man on a bucket, fishing through 18 inches of ice in a lake that's constantly turning over its water atop an Arcadian mountain in America. Arcadia, this American pastoral, a lone fisherman on a frozen lake who is really, no, not really, but also a vengeful Vietnam veteran resting after having stalked and then killed his ex-wife and her lover. Here, at the intersection of the terrible aftermath of the Vietnam War, the persecutorial wrath of political correctness, and the hubris of self-invention, the fate of these people yields a quiet knowledge. The American melting pot that became a multicultural stew released a toxic, avenging spirit. But maybe, just maybe, it has rediscovered something else. A consciousness yielded from the rubble of our self-creations, the we that is inescapable, beyond our blackness or our Jewishness or even our Americanness. As the metamorphic imagination gives way to a sense of inevitability, a more humble and human spirit, something that the ancients began to know in their inner most tragic imagination comes to compete with the hubris and comedy of self-invention. Thank you. I might just take a moment for people to find seats. There are, there are seats, so if you'd like to sit in a real chair rather than on the stairs, you're welcome. Okay, uh, thank you, Senator, for a wonderful talk and a wonderful sense, as in Bob's paper, of how history and fate get entwined, get history and fate get called by each other's names, um, and terrible things happen in novels and reality as a consequence. Um, Alvin Rosenfeld is director of the Jewish Studies Program at uh, the University of Indiana. Uh, he's the author of A Double Dying, uh, Imagining Hitler, and editor of a volume called Thinking About the Holocaust, uh, most recently, I think. Alvin. Thank you. Some 20 years ago, the critic Harold Bloom published a rather melancholy essay on the prospects of Jewish cultural survival in America. The Jews are preeminently a people of the book, he noted, but as a consequence of a profound falling away of tech-centeredness, as he called it, 
among younger American Jews as among Americans in general, the future looked dim. Unless they can recover their former passionate love for literature, Bloom reflected ruefully, in 30 years there would be small chance for an alert, self-identified American Jewry to have anything like a distinct and vigorous cultural life. Whether Bloom is right in forecasting a coming cultural decline of American Jewry is a matter we might discuss together, but he is surely right about the central place of reading in Jewish life. Take away their books and the Jews become a much poorer people, maybe even a different people. I want to reflect on the nature of the connection between Jews and books and see if I can help clarify the links between what Jews read and who they are. By looking at the reading passions and reading matter of characters portrayed in some of the works of American Jewish authors, we can learn a good deal about the personal identities and cultural aspirations of American Jews. Two classic works from the immigrant period, Mary Anton's The Promised Land, first published in 1912, and Abraham Kahan's The Rise of David Levinsky, 1917, can help set the direction for the brief reflections that follow. Anton's memoir, a highly popular book that went through 34 printings and sold some 85,000 <coughs> copies in the author's lifetime, makes an early and important contribution to the story of the Americanization of the East European Jew. Its opening chapters, set in Polotsk, Russia, portray a traditional Jewish culture that elevated the book, specifically the Torah and other works of sacred literature, as a source of spiritual power and social status. In Mary Anton's words, the study of Torah was the most honored of all occupations, and they who engaged in it, the most revered of all men. The gender-specific language here is intentional, for as she wrote, while in the synagogue scores of men sat all day long over their Hebrew books, girls could not be scholars in Rabunim. Anton acknowledges this exclusion as an established fact of life, but it did not please her. For, as she put it, there was nothing in what the boys did in Cheder that I could not have done if I had not been a girl. A girl's real schoolroom was her mother's kitchen. That's quoted from her book. During a visit to the home of some relatives in Vitebsk, Anton found a way beyond these limitations through her uncle's library, where for the first time she discovered secular books. Written in Russian and Yiddish, there were works of poetry, short fiction, and tales of romantic adventure. I quote from her book again. I was so hungry for books, she writes, that I went at them greedily. I read every spare minute of the day and most of the night. Anton refers to this time in her life as a period of what she calls wild reading, one consequence of which was that Polotsk, when she returned to it, was too small for her. The boundaries of her imagination had stretched, and she yearned for more. 
The name of that amplitude was a magical one, not only to her, but to millions of East European Jews, America. In contrast to Mary Anton's Europe, education in America was free and open to all. It is not surprising, therefore, that Anton embraced the public school and public library with the same ardor that the pious Jews of Polotsk embraced the synagogue and study house. Their passion for traditional religious study found a parallel in her passion for secular learning. The first book she came to own was a volume of Longfellow's poems. Many others were to follow. <laughs> Reading naturally led to writing, and while still a young girl, she experienced the thrill of seeing some of her youthful sketches and poems into print. Liberated by the sense that she could occupy her rightful place in a tech-centered world that formerly excluded her, Anton refashioned a new identity for herself, that of a patriotic American, an aspiring intellectual. Given these ambitions, books would naturally be at the center of her life, but not Jewish books, and I quote from her once again. I had neglected my books of devotion and given myself up to profane literature at the first opportunity, and I never took up my prayer book again. This substitution of secular for sacred texts is crucial and defining, and not only for Mary Anton. For with it, one sees the emergence of a cultural type already well-known in European Jewish literatures that was to become familiar in the literature of American Jewish authors over the course of the 20th century. The Jew as free spirit and autonomous intellectual, cut loose from Jewish religious traditions, but still exercising a recognizably Jewish devotion to the intensities of learning. As the first notable Jewish writer in this country to project the intellectual vocation as a desirable end in itself, Mary Anton set a direction that many others were to follow and thereby won a permanent place for herself in the history of American Jewish literature. With Abraham Kahan's novel, something of a countertype develops, The Jew is Parvenu. Trained as a Talmudist in Russia, David Levinsky gives up the moral discipline and spiritual rewards of traditional Jewish learning for the acquisition of wealth and the pursuit of romantic love and conventional domesticity. As a boy in Antomir, Russia, Levinsky spent years immersed in the study of classical Jewish texts. But soon after his arrival in New York, he puts all of that behind him and embarks on a career in the garment business. Once he learns English, and he does so in part by taking up the Bible in English translation, <coughs> he reads Dickens and Thackeray, Herbert Spencer and Darwin. These authors tend to confirm what he gleans about the roughness of life from his day-to-day -day experiences in the business world, and he uses their writings to validate an attitude of condescension towards those lower down on the social ladder. He comes to view the Lower East Side, where he had lived for a number of years as a poor worker, 
as practically a foreign country, and he regards its intellectuals and everything they wrote with contempt. His denigration of the intellectual life extends well beyond his old neighborhood. Visiting the Astor Library, whose holdings included a rich collection of Hebrew books, Levinsky remarks, and I quote, sitting down in a public library to read a book seemed to be an undignified proceeding for a manufacturer to engage in. Meeting a Hebrew poet in New York, he takes satisfaction in the thought, and I quote from him once again, that I could buy and sell him. And yet for all of his business success, and it's considerable, Levinsky comes to realize that his rise in America has been purchased at a high price. Alienation from his earlier self, which essentially was bound up with books, and his story ends on a melancholy note. I quote the last few sentences of the book. There are cases when success is a tragedy. David, the poor lad swinging over a Talmud volume at the preacher's synagogue, seems to have more in common with my inner identity than David Levinsky, the well-known cloak manufacturer. Anton and Levinsky, I submit, can be taken as emblematic of two contrasting developments within American Jewish culture. On the one hand, the Jew who gives up a connection to Jewish books but otherwise pursues a tech-centered life, and on the other hand, the Jew who disconnects from books almost altogether to pursue a life of material success. These obviously do not exhaust the range of characters to be found in American Jewish writing, but they do project certain tendencies that recur. Books, of course, are not the only measure of the man, but they are a significant measure of the Jew. And in American Jewish literature, a character's proximity to or distance from particular books is often revealing. What such figures read, why they read, and whether they forego reading for other things tell us a good deal about who they are and what they aspire to be. From Mary Anton on, portraits of the Jew as intellectual abound in works of American Jewish fiction and autobiography. Among a great many others, one thinks of Bellows, Moses Herzog, Arta Samler, and Abe Ravelstein, of Philip Roth's Nathan Zuckerman and E.I. Lanoff, of Wallace Markfield's Morrow Reef and Arthur A. Cohen's Erica Hertz, of virtually every major character in Rebecca Goldstein's <coughs> novels, of Anne Reifey's Annie Johnson, and most recently, and perhaps even as the culmination of this type, of Brian Morton's finely drawn portrait of Leonard Schiller in the recently published Starting Out in the Evening. Add to these fictionalized portraits of the bookish Jew the self-portraits that one finds in the autobiographical and essayistic writings of Alfred Kaysen, Irving Howe, Leslie Fiedler, Norman Podhoritz, and various others, and one finds the Jew as intellectual established as a familiar type, so much so 
that John Updike has had little trouble reproducing and parodying it in his three books about Henry Beck. Whether John Updike, by the way, should be included as a Jewish author in the collection here is a nice question. <laughs> if one were to go through this large body of literature and examine what it is that these Jewish readers read, one would find a rich and variegated library of European and American writings. What one would not find, or only rarely find, would be the kinds of books that, that define distinctively a distinctively Jewish literacy. We can argue a little bit later about what it is, if you wish. If in some measure one is what one reads, what does it say about the Jewish readers portrayed in works of American Jewish fiction and autobiography that they seldom take up Jewish books? No more and no less, I suppose, than the obvious. In their intellectual makeup, they accurately reflect the thoroughness and success of Jewish acculturation in the New World, which in most cases saw the displacement of classical Jewish texts by, by the classics of Western literature. To be sure, one finds in works of American Jewish literature numerous references to Kafka and Freud, and also to a Martin Buber, Isaac Babel, or Hannah Arendt. Fictions that draw deeply on more canonical Jewish texts, such as Henry Roth's Call It Sleep, or A.M. Klein's The Second Scroll, however, are rather rare. This situation may be changing somewhat, as I will indicate shortly. But in the main, American Jewish literature develops the figure of the intellectual along lines established almost a century ago by Mary Anton, which is not to say, incidentally, along exclusively secular lines, for like Anton herself, who confessed that throughout her life she desired nothing so much as to glimpse the face of God, some of these figures exhibit a pronounced religious side to them. Saul Bellow comes immediately to mind, in particular the Bellow who has moved to metaphysical speculations of an often ardent kind. A sometimes serious, sometimes comic attempt to explore the compelling, if invisible, things of the spiritual realm, including communion with the dead, is a mark of some of Bellow's most notable fiction. And yet when his characters find themselves thinking about God or the soul or whatever it is that death may signify to them, they are far more likely to invoke the writings of Jakob Burma or Meister Eckhart, Rainer Maria Rilke or Rudolf Steiner than Jewish texts that investigate these same matters. Bello is probably unmatched in projecting a Jewish sensibility that is simultaneously tough-minded and tender-hearted, as he is in registering the cadences and tonalities of urban Jewish speech. But in portraying the spiritual strivings of some of his most memorable characters, he typically looks away from the religious sources of Judaism. And in this respect, 
he is hardly alone. Late in his life, for instance, Alfred Kaysen, another passionate seeker after ultimate truths, published an ambitious and highly personal book entitled God and the American Writer. While it reflects Kaysen's persistent, if generally frustrated, search for transcendent meaning, the book makes virtually no mention at all of Jewish writers. The same is true of the early autobiography of Walker in the City. In highly lyrical terms, Kazin describes a youthful spiritual quest carried on mostly through extensive readings, which culminates in his discovery of the New Testament and a figure who would have raised the eyebrows of his parents and most other immigrant Jews of his Brownsville neighborhood. I quote from Kazin, Surely I had been waiting for him all my life, our own Yeshua. It was he, I thought, who would resolve for me at last the ambiguity and the long ache of being a Jew, Yeshua, our own long-lost Jesus. Kazin's rhapsodic discovery of Jesus in an English translation of the Christian Bible seems to have been bound up with his romantic attachment to the English language itself and his earlier readings in the British metaphysical and romantic poets. The books that shaped the youthful Kazin's fundamental literacy, in other words, also helped to shape his religious sensibility. Textuality and spirituality are often intimate with one another, of course, and as in this instance, the books in one's hands help to shape the language of the heart and give voice to its yearnings. Seekers of another sort show up in Philip Roth's fictions. You've heard now two very fine papers that review some of that ground. To look at only one recent example, and I'll do this only briefly, Seymour Irving Lvov, the Swede of Roth's American pastoral, is not much of a reader at all as an adult, but the shelf in his bedroom contains the baseball books he favored in his earlier years. They have titles like The Kid from Tompkinsville, Iron Duke, Keystone Kids, Rookie of the Year, and others of this kind. These illustrate his desire to be a regular American guy, a goal he achieves brilliantly, only to have it thrown back at him with a vengeance by his daughter Mary, whose aspirations are of another more subversive kind, as we just heard. During one stage of her life, Mary reads Karl Marx, Herbert Marcuse, Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, and other assorted works of leftist literature. When she gives up her life as a political radical, she turns for a time to a range of world religious writings, then gives up reading altogether, along with just about everything else in life, in obedience to the ascetic vows of her newly adopted Jain religion, and these are written out in a postcard somewhere in her shabby room and seem to serve as the only surviving text in this family. We could extend this list of citations almost indefinitely and still, I suspect, arrive at the same conclusions 
this Morris Dickstein reached in summing up the achievements of some of our best writers, I refer to an essay that Morris published in Tikkun a couple of years ago, and I quote from that essay, the generation of Bellow and Malamud brought real Jews into American literature, but left Judaism out. Are there any signs that Judaism may be coming back in? Would that even be a possible or a desirable thing? Not obviously in any creedal or doctrinal sense. We are, after all, talking mostly about the novel. But in one interesting and unanticipated way, maybe yes. I refer to the return of the Jewish book within the book, or the surprising reversal in some instances of Mary Anton's cultural trajectory. A scene at the end of Anne Rife's loving kindness might be taken as paradigmatic. Annie Johnson, a well-read feminist intellectual, she is the author of a book on 19th century New England spinsters, is visiting Israel in an effort to persuade her daughter, an ex-hippie kid from New York now living in a women's yeshiva in Jerusalem, to come to her senses and return home. Rabbi Cohen, her daughter's mentor, gives Annie a Hebrew prayer book, which in a spontaneous act of rejection, she quickly tosses into a nearby wastebasket. And then, just as quickly, she reaches in and pulls it out. In a more than metaphorical sense, this retrieval of the formerly discarded Jewish book may signal, I believe, a new direction in the work of certain American Jewish writers. I think of the search for the lost book in Cynthia Ozick's The Messiah of Stockholm and Aryeh Lev Stolman's forthcoming novel, The Illuminated Soul, of a reconnection to Yiddish books and authors elsewhere in Ozick's fiction and in some of the stories of Steve Stern and Nathan Englander, of an engagement with Jewish midrashic and mystical writings in Stolman's wonderful first novel, The Far Euphrates, and Myla Goldberg's Bee Season, and of the presence of more traditional sacred texts in some of the work of Allegra Goodman, Ehud Havatzelet, and Alan Hoffman. And there are certainly others not mentioned in this short list of citations that you yourselves can recall. What do they amount to collectively? Nothing like the recasting of American Jewish literature along Talmudic lines, although in Benjamin Zucker's multi-layered novel, Blue, published a year ago, <laughs> we see precisely such a recasting. But within segments of this literature, an intertextual colloquy of a highly engaging sort. Annie Johnson's retellings of Reb Nachman's stories in Loving Kindness is one example. Aryeh Lev Stolman's creative use of portions of the Book of Numbers and of various midrashim in the Illuminated Soul is another example. Cynthia Ozick, Rebecca Goldstein, Steve Stern, Alan Hoffman, and others 
frequently draw on biblical, mishnaic, midrashic, kabbalistic, and liturgical literature to fashion their own fictions. In addition, Hebrew authors are brought back to life by name by a number of writers, and references to Primo Levi and other writers of Holocaust literature are more and more common in the work of younger writers, some of them represented in this program, Thane Rosenbaum and Melvin Bouquet among them. As this conversation of Jewish authors with their literary precursors continues, and I strongly suspect it will continue, it will become increasingly apparent that in at least one strain of American Jewish literature, the culture of the text is changing. An interesting library of Jewish books is beginning to accumulate inside some notable books given us by more recent Jewish writers. And as a consequence, readers are being exposed to sources of a kind that have seldom appeared in the work of many of our earlier writers. While it's still too early to know how much imaginative talent and energy this development will attract, its existence is itself interesting and would seem to indicate that the cultural prospects of American Jewry look better today than they did to Harold Bloom 20 years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Alvin, for a very, very thoughtful and subtle presentation of a rather elegant and oblique question. Um, time is short, and coffee is important, but questions are also important. So perhaps we'll take five minutes uh, of questions and then go for coffee. So please, questions and comments. Yeah, Hannah. Who answers questions to Which Roth are we talking about? Oh, Roth Phillips. Could, 
could I just... Could, I could... Okay. Cedric, yes. Go ahead. Cedric can... Uh, no, no, Cedric can reform. <laughs> right. I understood. Did, did you all sort of get the, the thrust? I mean, I would almost, until the very end of your statement, Han, I would have said, you know, I agree with you. But then I realized there was a question here. So, um, and I guess I don't really completely agree. And that, that gives me an opportunity to respond. The real question, if, and you'll tell me if I'm, if I'm not r- stating it um, accurately, <clears throat> that uh, if what I'm, that Roth seems to be, making a Jewish claim about self-invention through access to or reference or his resources are Greek, the Greek tragic vision, um, which is, and this is the word used, antithetical to the Jewish. Okay. So if I understood the question, my answer would be, um, first of all, I don't really think that the Greek and the uh, Jewish must be or are always inevitably antithetical, and I think that one of I think they're in a in, in a dialectical position and have been for the last two thousand years or so. But that one of the sort of exciting things that's happening, and it's happening also in the American context, but not only in the American context, is the way in which both the Greek and the Hebrew, or the Jewish imagination and the Hellenist imagination, if you will, are constantly informing each other. And I think that that Roth's position here is not an antagonistic one, particularly in this book. I think that in spite of what I call the surtext of political correctness and his own sort of rage at at that kind of of, um, uh, self-righteousness, I think that he is presenting us with with something which is, in my view, the crowning, his crowning achievement, and that is a synthetic view of cultural possibility. Um, so that I really believe that this, as I said at the end of my paper, goes beyond Jewishness, beyond blackness, beyond Greek, if you will, like, or, or maybe gestures towards the, a Greek understanding of tragedy, which I think he's actually refined in our own idiom. Um, and I think that that's an American response to those challenges. I don't think that he's making a Jewish statement using antithetical materials. I think that all of these materials are active here and that he's creating a kind of, of wonderful um, synthesis. Yep. Another question? Yeah. Alicia. <laughs> Alicia, speak a little slower and perhaps turn.
Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say something in, in, uh, in a mixture of Bob's voice and mine. Mature. <laughs> I'll say what I understand him to be saying. It seems to me that there is a, there, or at least just a distinction could be made between uh, what one might think of as an American project, a project which could be called assimilation, a place where everybody remained who they were but also became mixed everybody else. They were both uh, independent, free, uh, fully independent selves and also indistinguishable from others because they were all fully free independent selves. They could be loyal to their past and their families. They could also be Americans. Um, and that this condition is always presented to us as not achievable. That is, in some, that it's presented to us by some people as not desirable because they don't desire it, uh, one end of a spectrum. It's presented to us another as well as just not achievable. And I think, the, the, to return a question to the question, the interesting thing is why is it not Achievable. I mean, the, the, the argument would be, why is, this, why can't, why are, is there no free lunch at the Feast of Assimilation? Why couldn't you just have the lunch and assimilate? What's, who is exacting the price? What, what, who or what is exacting the price? And the same question could be phrased in terms of America. As if America is, as people from Emerson through Stanley Cavell have always been saying, is an uncompleted project. If America is what is still to come, if America is the place that we've not quite yet managed to make out of all, with all immigrants, aliens, and natives put together, we can't still quite get it to happen. Why is that? Now, is, that a, is, is it a design feature? Is it designed not to ever happen? Or is it that, with the, for example, what's, is it that we just can't bring ourselves to feel okay about the free lunch? That is, is it history or destiny or fate, some terrible force that says there shall be no free lunches? Or is it a whole series of lunches sitting there thinking, this lunch looks free, but it can't be. <laughs> I'm actually less interested in, in how much I have to pay for that lunch than what I'm eating there. And I'm wondering whether, you know, it, we're all eating Big Macs or maybe there's some other um, option. I, Alicia, I would have to think about that. I don't know. I mean, I think that your question, again, is an interesting statement, how I would figure in the great Gatsby. And, 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 and certainly, if we're looking for, you know, some kind of subtext, I wasn't looking there, but I think that it would be an interesting place to go. Um, and and, and and, and the, particularly because I think Roth really is um, marking a kind of moment where we're on the cusp of something, and that may also be what we see in the in Fitzgerald. So that you know, I, I don't want to presume mm -hmm. to answer me on that. Alvin, you personally want to say something? Uh, not on that issue. Okay, Dan. And yet it seems like such a tantalizing dream, because it is the dream of dream. But the 
freedom from what? And then the what is what we keep falling back on because self-definition is an essential part of the project of being a person. And I think that that sort of tension, you know, in, I think that the reason that history keeps intervening in law, <coughs> it's really brought into and, and beating up his character as he keeps doing it, saying you can't be a character. You're going to be sad. I would agree with what you said. Uh, certainly one feels that tension in Roth, but in a great many others as well. And in the writers that I was noting in my own presentation, the form this tension takes towards resolution is a return to Jewish literacy. Could I just add a word to that? I don't know what our time is like. I, I actually um, preferred the word that I used um, the word alloy rather than assimilation. And I really think that that's where we are in the post sort of multicultural moment that we're in. Um, I, I have to say that I'm a little nervous um, about the return to, I thought it was an interesting move that Alvin made, the return to books. And, and you seem to make a distinction between books and texts. Um, books meaning some sort of having sort of, sort of an artifactual uh, artifactual status. Um, the hasefer in Hebrew, right? The the sacred. Um, I, I don't think you meant only sacred texts because you were also referring to writers like Primo Levi, who has himself very little. Um, Jewish intertextuality or or, or consciousness, and so I, I don't think that you're only referring to sacred texts or the sacred discourse, but somehow you're making a distinction between texts that, i.e., reading, um, and reading of Jewish literature. And I think that the boundaries of Jewish literature, when they get very confined, um, also have the have their own dangers. Um, and and so I you know I think that what we're what we're looking at is a constant project as you said that constantly unfinished project. Speaking of unfinished projects, this could be the moment to thank. Uh